encouraging. You will turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing our studies in the doctrine of salvation. We have come to the doctrine of adoption. We have seen that this is the very climax of God's work for us in Christ. We mentioned last week that the blessings of salvation accumulate and pile up and keep getting better. We're justified, we're forgiven, we're accepted, we're reconciled. But here's the top of it all. We are made God's children. We are made his sons and daughters in Christ. We mentioned that last time we dealt with uh, what that means, and today I want to take the subject of living as God's children. And we'll look then at Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who's in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for this marvelous doctrine that tells us of your love for us and all that you've accomplished for us in Jesus. We thank you for this passage that gives us such marvelous instruction of our privileges and then our responsibilities in living as God's children. And I pray that you will 
bring these truths home to our hearts, encourage us by them, and challenge us by them as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The last time we saw that we are sons of God in the Son, Jesus Christ, because he is the Son of God, and because we are united to him, we are sons of God as well. Actually, lying behind all of this is a, a mountain of theology with enormous depths, in fact, some of the deepest waters, I think, in the scriptures concerning the relations of the three persons of the triune Godhead. These three persons who are eternally God, eternally glorious, are distinguished as persons by their relations to one another. Eternally, the Father is the Father. Eternally, he generates the Son. The Son is related to the Father as a Son, eternally. And it's always been that way. And the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, eternally. I would love to go into depths of that. It would take us a good long time to do that. But that is the background to, or some of the background to this wonderful doctrine of adoption. We are sons in the Son. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Father sent the Son to accomplish the redemption of his chosen people. And he has come and done for us all that God requires of us. And he has joined himself to us now by his Spirit indwelling us so that joined to to the Son by the Spirit, we become sons and daughters of God as well. Last time we looked at that in relation to Romans chapter 8, where we saw primarily the role of the Holy Spirit in this marvelous doctrine of adoption. We saw that, first of all, the Holy Spirit establishes our sonship. That is important. We are joined to Christ by faith, and the bond of that union is the Spirit indwelling us. Christ has sent his Spirit to come to us and to make us his And by the indwelling of the Spirit, we are united to Christ and so made sons. And so the the Spirit, first of all, establishes our sonship. We saw also that the Holy Spirit, we just saw this briefly, the Holy Spirit leads us to live as sons. He breaks the grip of sin over us and enables us to live unto righteousness. We'll see that in the coming weeks. We saw also, and we saw this at length, In Romans chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit affirms our sonship. It is a great part of his work to affirm in our own hearts not only that God loves us and ministered to us a sense of acceptance and a sense of confidence before God, but to minister to us specifically God's love to us as our Father and confirm in our hearts that we are his children So that now instinctively, by the Holy Spirit's work in us, our cry to God is that of Father. We recognize by the Spirit's work in us, God's love to us as Father and our acceptance by him as his children. So he affirms our sonship. And then we saw also he enlivens our hearts with an anticipation of glory. That in Romans chapter 8, that we are joined to Christ and joined to him, we are children of God and sons, and if sons, then heirs, 
and in fact, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And not only does it tell us that in black ink on a white page, but the Spirit has come to enliven in our hearts a sense of that anticipation so that our groaning in this fallen world is not a hopeless groaning, but it's a groaning filled with hope of a greater day to come, and that is in the fullness, full revelation of the sons of God, the res- redemption of the body that we experience in our resurrection. That then is in the background, and today now we come to a more practical dimension of that. I don't know, is it more practical? or I don't know if we can get more practical than that, that God loves us and has accepted us. But another practical dimension of this, and that is living as God's sons and daughters. How does all of that that we learned last week work out in terms of our daily experience? And believe it or not, the Sermon on the Mount is framed in that way, in a considerable way, in Matthew 5 to 7, and especially here in chapter 6 that we will see. The context here in chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, as we read, is that of true versus false piety. Uh, True religion versus a mere show of religion. You can have a show of religion, in which case people will be impressed, or you can have genuine religion in which God notices and you'll be rewarded accordingly. That's verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. There's the point. Beware of practicing righteousness. Not wrong. Nothing wrong with practicing righteousness. But don't practice righteousness in order to be seen by other people. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. That's the larger point now of this whole passage. There are two different kinds of religion. A, a true religion and a false, a true piety and a false piety, a true piety before God and a false piety of show before others in which they look and are impressed. And so Jesus then, that's the point now, verse 1, but in the following verses, he gives us three specific applications of that. Verses 2 to 4, he talks about charitable giving. Charitable giving, of course, is a very good thing. It's commended uh, to us in the, in the scriptures repeatedly. But there are two different ways, very different ways of going about charitable giving. You can give in a way that others notice it and they are impressed with your generosity and they say, wow, what a wonderful person. And Jesus says, you've got your reward. People are impressed. Or you cannot let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's assuming you're right-handed. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is. Just, just do it. Don't do it in, other, in front of others to be seen by them. But your Father in heaven will see it, and he will notice, and you'll receive reward from him. And so you have your choice, reward from others or re- reward from God our Father. And then he gives another illustration, verses 5 to 15, and this is the, he applies it with regard to prayer. Again, a very good thing commended and commanded in the scriptures, but there are two very different ways of doing it. In this world, the biblical world, Jesus makes reference to the way the Pharisees would stand in the streets and make their great prayers, and everyone would see these people making their long orations of great piety, talking to God, and they're impressed. Look at those godly people. And Jesus says, They have their reward. People are impressed. 
Or you could pray at home with the door closed where nobody sees you, but your Father in heaven sees you, and you'll have his reward, his approval. And then verses 17 and 18, he gives another application, and that is with fasting. Again, the same application. There are two very different ways of doing it. You can do it in a way that everyone knows it, and they'll see that you're in these claws of this great spiritual struggle and that you're doing without because you're in earnest in prayer before God, and they'll be impressed. What a godly person. And Jesus says, you have your reward. They're impressed. Or when you go out, when you're in a fast, you can wash up, clean up, and go about your normal activity, and no one knows but God knows and you'll have his approval. So genuine piety, that's the overall point of the passage. Genuine piety before God is not that of show. You have to choose. You can have the esteem of others, or you can have approval from God. It's one of those passages that's just deeply probing. It has to do not only with our practice of religion, but our hearts in it, which God sees entirely. All right, that's the larger context then of this passage. In verses 7 to 15 now, we have a slight digression from that point at hand. And here in verses 7 and 8 now, he's not dealing with showy praying, but with repetitious praying. There's been a lot of discussion on exactly what Jesus means here in verse uh, 7, the vain repetitions, the way it's translated in the old King James Version, or here the uh, heaping up empty phrases, what does that mean? Actually, the, the Greek word here is, is, is a rare one, and lexicographers just aren't real sure as to exactly the etymology of it or the meaning. Um, it may have some um, background in Aramaic that means something like idle or useless. It might be an onomatopoeic word, you know, one of those words that sounds like what it is, something like a babble. Babble, babbling, uh, that's kind of what the Greek word might, Im- might imply, something like that. But at the very least, and then the lexicon defines it as, as words, uh, saying the same words over and over again. And in that sense, babbling could mean a chant, it, having the reference to the Gentiles here, it could mean they're chanting and praying the same thing over and again. At least the idea of repetitiousness is involved. But even that is difficult as well because not all repetition in prayer is wrong. Jesus himself prayed all night long about one thing as he went to the cross. And in fact, Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 18 and commands the importunate widow who was heard because of she kept asking. And he holds that up as a, as a model for us. And in fact, even here in this model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That's to be prayed every day. And in fact, this entire prayer is to be prayed every day. Every day we should go to God and say, Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Every day we should pray these things. So exactly what does this, what is this being prohibited here in this 
Don't use vain repetitions or heap up empty phrases. Actually, I think the, the uh, ESV here in its paraphrase, heaping up endless phrases, empty phrases, probably gets to the idea pretty well. Uh, the point, I think, is obvious, and that is avoid meaningless verbiage in your prayer. He's talking here about repetitive prayers, Prayers that are offered under the mistaken hope that because I pray long or because I prayed over and over again, they will necessarily be efficacious and God must hear because I've said it a lot. Uh, that mere length and repetition somehow is a make, way to make prayer work. Jesus here makes reference to the Gentiles. They do that. Uh, again, that might be the endless chants or something like that. It could be put it in more of a Christian-esque context, counting beads, lighting candles. But in any case, he's speaking to Jews who don't do any of that. And they have some kind of repetitious praying, hoping that by their long, windy prayers, and by praying a lot, they'll be heard, and Jesus just blankets it all. So that's just like the Gentiles do, same thing as they do. Now, in verses 9, then, in following, he gives us a model or a sample prayer for us to follow from which we are, we should, we are to learn to pray. It's not at all wrong to repeat this prayer verbally um, or verbatim, for that matter. I think the point of it is not just that. The point of it is to give us the sample of the categories of praying. And it's set in terms of sonship, and I want you to notice that. At the very outset, verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on. So he's telling us right up front, pray out of a recognition that God is our Father and pray out of a recognition of his fatherly care. Verse 8, God already knows what you need. But as your Father, he invites you to come. And so, verse 9, prayer ought to begin with this recognition of God as father. Verses 7 to 9 are all about fatherly access, prayer to God as our father who is in heaven. I might pause here just as an aside. This is not the point of the sermon. It's not the point of the passage, but it is related in our day. It is not mother. Today we are told we should pray mother, and it's just blasphemous to take our culture, shifting cultural ideals and impose them on God and name him in a way that he has not named himself. He identifies himself as our father. God is not some wax nose that we can shape any way we like. He is God, and we address him as he has told us to. Okay, that aside, God is our father. It's difficult, I think, to over state the significance of that. Our Father in heaven. 
our Father in heaven. That ought to revolutionize prayer. When we pray, we are not trying to influence an otherwise unwilling deity. Endless chants, counting our beads, lighting candles, saying things over and over again like we can manipulate him somehow. When we pray, we're not trying to influence some unwilling God. He is our Father. His heart toward us is one of love and affection, one of filial care. He wants always to do us good. And this is just a marvelous thought. The God who is God over all, the God who made the world, the God who is God over history, the God who rules everything that is, the God of Abraham, the God of David, the God who is eternal. This God has sent his Son to be our Savior, and that Son has come and accomplished for us all that is needed, and he has sent his Spirit to join us to him so that in him we are, his son, we are God's sons also. Christ, our elder brother, And God invites us now to come with that sense of our childship to God, that we belong to him and we should come to him in a sense of boldness and freeness and openness, like children coming to their father. When we pray our father in heaven, we call to mind all that the triune God has done to accomplish our salvation. He reminds us of it, through it, of the access that we have in Christ, to God our Father. Now, it's difficult to imagine any single factor that could give us more confidence in prayer. This is not some duty that we have. This is is the great privilege to come before the God of the universe and know that we are his children, that his heart toward us is that of a father toward his child who wants wants to do us good, and we come and remind ourselves of that at the outset, and say, Our Father, who is in heaven. When we're kids, we like to think that our dad's the best, our dad's the strongest, my dad's tougher than your dad. This beats all that. My Father in heaven, the God of all, has made me his child, and he welcomes me to come. Brothers and sisters, this is intended for you. God intends for us to come before him, not not irreverently, but boldly. The freeness of access of children before their father. You are not insignificant to God And your concerns are not insignificant to him. And so we come to God and we pray, our Father. Now in this sample prayer that he gives us, this shapes everything about the prayer. Verses 9 and 10, we bring our praises and our prayers to advance God's, our Father's interests. Verses 9 and 10, we bring our praises and our prayers to advance the Father's interests. Hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So our prayer begins with praise to God and seeking the advance of his kingdom. We pray, hallowed be your name, sanctified, holy be your name. God is holy. And there's nothing you can do to make him more holy. But what we want is for him to be recognized as holy. Hallowed be your name. Set yourself apart from the earth in a way that we will recognize you as the holy God that you are. And so we're seeking the Father, our Father's interests when we pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We've talked many times around here about the God's eternal purpose and God's purpose in history of reestablishing his rule in the world and reestablishing his kingdom. What we want to see, and in the end, what we will see is God's will done on earth just as it is now in heaven. That is not the case now, and so what we are praying in this is for the Father's kingdom to be advanced and be brought to its climactic realization in the return of Christ. In all of that, we're seeking the Father's interests and seeking our Father's glory. Verse 11, we pray for our Father's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. We pray for the Father's provision, our daily sustenance. It's a father's responsibility to provide for his family. And he tells us now in prayer to look to God in that respect, for him to provide for us our daily needs. God is not unconcerned with our needs, and it is a false piety to think that these kinds of things are too trite to bring before God in prayer. In fact, it's an essential part of our worship when we go to God to acknowledge our dependence upon him as our father and ask that he will provide for us. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, our economy is falling apart. We deserve that. But Father, be merciful. Protect my income. Protect my employment. Give us this day our daily bread. This is, by the way, too easily forgotten that we depend upon God for it all. It's too easily forgotten as we accumulate our wealth. And as we grow older, we generally, it's the way it is in America, generally people do better as they get older. They get paid more and they become less and less with a sense of dependence. We begin to feel ourselves self-sufficient. And this prayer reminds us to acknowledge humbly before God that we depend upon him for every last thing that we have. And so we pray, give us our daily sustenance. Give us what we need. Verse 12, pray for the Father's forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Here he uses the metaphor of debt. Sin is a debt. By failing to give God what he deserves, we have incurred a debt. We come up owing. Now here he's not speaking of the forgiveness of God as a judge, but by which we are forgiven eternally and justified. But the forgiveness of our Father. Our sin has left a debt in the sense that it's violated the relationship with our Father and we come to him humbly and ask for his forgiveness. A somber recognition of our sin 
Again, something we too readily ignore. But seeing our sin as an intrusion into the relationship, we go to our Father and we say, forgive us our sins. Verse 13, we pray for the Father's protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A couple of things going on in this imagery here. One is the child's natural sense of safety under a father's protection. There's, for a child, there's no safer place than with dad. And that's some of the imagery going on here. The other side of the imagery going on here is that of the world as an unsafe place for us. Full of sin, full of danger, full of opposition from the evil one. In fact, often this has been translated, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one may be involved as well, but it's a prayer for God's protection, protection from sin. And so as we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We call to mind the opposition that we have in the world, the sinfulness of the world, the spiritual danger of the world. We call to mind our weakness. We call to mind our need. We call to mind our poor track record. We pray, God, God, deliver me from sin. Keep me from it today. Now, all of this in this Lord's Prayer is, a, is child to father oriented praying. It's grounded in a relationship of privilege. It's grounded in a relationship of affection and of love and protection, of familial concern and, and care. And this is the privilege of all who are sons in the Son. Go to God and bring him all of these prayers and petitions. Now, with all of that, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are some corresponding responsibilities as well in living as God's children. And much of the Sermon on the Mount is framed in this context as well. Let me give you just a few quickly. Number one, we must imitate our Father in our conduct. We must imitate our Father in our conduct. The idea here is that like Father, like Son. Now that's brought out in the Sermon on the Mount a few different times. Look at chapter 5, verse 9, back in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now what's the logic there? If you're a peacemaker, you'll be called a son of God. What's the thinking behind that? Well, in that day, the child grew up and basically did what the father did. Father was a carpenter, you're a carpenter. If your father's a baker, you're a baker. If your father's a farmer, you're a farmer. And to be the son of is to be like that. We find that in the scriptures on several different occasions. To be a son of Beelzebub is to be like the devil. If Barnabas is a son of consolation, he's a consoler. He's an encourager. To be a peacemaker is to be a son of God because that's just like him to make peace. He's the great peacemaker. And so to be a peacemaker and not a troublemaker is to show yourself to be a son of God. We have the same in chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. 
I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now again, you have the same kind of thinking. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father. It's just like God to forgive your enemies and to pray for them and to do good to your enemies. And if you want an example, Jesus says he does that. He sends his son on both the evil and the good. He sends the rain to the just and the unjust. He provides the seasons. Plant growth provides the harvest and he doesn't select. No, you're a bad guy. I'm not going to give you rain. And Here's a good guy. I'll give you rain. He does it for all of them. And just as God does good to his enemies, so we ought to do the same and show ourselves thereby to be sons of the Father. He gives another of it. Illustration of this in chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Imitate your Father in your conduct and live like him. Now our next point then is, very closely related to that. We must not only imitate God in our conduct, our Father, but we must live to reflect the Father's glory. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So here we imitate God in our conduct, And in turn, people see it and say, that looks like what they've been preaching about God. And God is honored in it. Now, in context here in the Beatitudes and in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, this entails a whole Christian counterculture where we live not by the standards of the world, but by different standards altogether. And by that, we give glory to our Father. Just quickly, verses 9 and 10, we pray to advance our Father's interests. We've already seen that. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we get to chapter 6, verses 18 and following. And he tells us we must, actually all of verses 1 to 18, we must seek always to please our Father in terms of charitable giving, in terms of praying, in terms of fasting, in terms of all of the exercises of religion, our heart, and our goal in it is to please the Father and not to show others. But then lastly, let's spend a moment here, we must trust our Heavenly Father. And this Jesus gives great deal of attention to. He draws it out at length in verses 19 and following. We must trust our Heavenly Father. In verses 19 and following, he tells us that this ought, our childship to God ought to affect how we spend our money, spend with kingdom interests. But then verses 20, 25 and following, he reasons with us to think as children of the heavenly Father. And he gives us some illustrations to make his point. Verse 25, do not be... Anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That is, because you're his children. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? 
And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they neither spin nor toil. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, and will not be, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Here Jesus gives us simple illustrations to say that as our Father, surely he will care for his children, and we ought to trust him as such. I haven't heard the song in years when I was a kid, it was more popular. I'm not sure it might have been a John W. Peterson song, one of those. It captures this idea, my heavenly father watches over me. I'm sure some of you older ones know that. Um, it doesn't have great profundity through the various stanzas of the, of the song, but, but it drives this point, my heavenly father watches over me. And I think it's the, the third stanza, if I remember correctly, uh, draws the point out of this passage exactly. He makes the rose the object of his care. He guides the eagle through the pathless air. And surely he remembers me. My heavenly father watches over me. This is Jesus' point here exactly, that if he is our father, we ought to honor him and trust him in every circumstance of life and not dishonor him in fear and panic and anxiety when things go difficult. Trust him as our Father, to provide what we need. Well, there's more. We could turn to the epistles, actually, and show how the epistles teach us that another application of this living as God's children, and that is we must learn to live together as a family, as God's children. This is a Big point, actually, in the epistles, particularly late in the epistles, in the back half of them, where Paul brings application, where we not only rejoice that we are God's children and that Christ is our elder brother, but we are to love one another as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we find it everywhere in the epistles, this brother language and this uh, one another passages exhorting us to love and to unity and to compa uh, compassion and, and to care for one another. All of this, then, is a practical application of our adoption as God's children. Just as sonship constitutes a massive privilege, it also car carries some enormous responsibilities on our part. To repeat, we are to imitate God our Father, reflect in our lives His character, and so bring glory to Him. We must seek always to please him in everything that we do and to advance his interests in the earth. We must trust him in every situation as our sovereign father. And we must love his children all and live with them in peace and unity. Now last time, last week when we looked at all of this on adoption, I concluded with a question why does God reveal this doctrine of adoption to us? And I 
I concluded that he reveals it to us to, so that we may revel in it. And that's exactly what the Apostle John draws from it. 1 John chapter 3. Brothers, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. We ought never to take for granted the great privilege of it. When we bow to say, Father, it ought to strike us every time with the honor that we have as God's children. But here now, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have more. Yeah, they're family privileges. God is our Father, and we pray accordingly. But there's also with that some family responsibilities. We ought always to live up to the family name, both in the world and among ourselves. We ought never panic in life's upsets as though God has left us orphans. Honor our Heavenly Father with the trust that he deserves. Let's bow then for prayer.